to the review of democracy. We are the online journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, a platform where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso, I will be your host, and it is my special pleasure to be discussing with John M. Owen IV today. Welcome to the show, John, and thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Ferenc. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Great to have you. By way of an all-too-brief introduction, uh, John M. Owen is a professor of politics at the University of Virginia and a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture and the Miller Center for Public Affairs. He's the previous author of several highly significant books, which include The Clash of Ideas in World Politics, Transnational Networks, States and Regime Change, 1510 to 2010, and Confronting Political Islam, Six Lessons from the West's Past. Now, John M. Owen's newest book is titled The Ecology of Nations, American Democracy in a Fragile World Order, which I have read with great interest and which shall serve as the basis of our conversation today. And let us perhaps begin with two central concepts in this uh, new book of yours, John. Co-evolution and the regime power dilemma. So first of all, what is meant by these two expressions? And how would an approach that centers these two concepts differ from other approaches common in the study of international politics and international relations? Yes, uh... You've zoomed right into the heart of the matter here. I'll take these in turns, but they are connected, the two, the two terms. Coevolution, obviously, I borrow from biological science and, and its affiliated you know, cousin sciences. I'll start with, with just evolution, the familiar neo-Darwinian set of mechanisms that select for particular traits in a species. So a white, a snowy climb in the Arctic uh, favors polar bears over brown bears. And so we, we're all familiar with that. What I do is apply by analogy the notion that the international environment can actually select for certain traits within countries, uh, for example, regime type. So there are certain times and places, I argue, when it has been easier because of environmental pressures to be a democracy than to be authoritarian. And there have been times and places where the opposite is the case. It's easier. Authoritarianism is actually selected for. So the 1930s in Europe and the, the New World, the Americas, would be a time when it's looking more difficult to sustain democracy. You see democracy falling to various right-wing authoritarian movements, fascism and others. Um, you have communism gaining strength on the far left and so on. The 1990s is very different. It seems much easier to be a democracy, at least in most of the world, than authoritarian. Um, so that's one move. This is why I think it's helpful to think about it in evolutionary terms. Coevolution recognizes that states are not passive in the face of this environment, and particularly great powers like the United States and these days China have quite a bit of leverage over the same international environment that selects for certain traits. So in the book, I talk about how this happens in nature. Beavers, the story is there used to be short-tooth and long-tooth beavers. The long-tooth beavers were able to chop down trees 
that trapped food that gave them a reproductive advantage over the short tooth beavers. That's how we got long tooth beavers dominating the beaver population all over the world. What's happening there is the long tooth beavers are actually shaping the environment, the same environment that selects for certain traits in beavers. They are shaping it. They're steering evolution. They're engineering the ecosystem in a sense. Great powers do something like that. They actually do it deliberately. Beavers don't really intend to be doing this. They're just trying to get more food. But great powers in, intuit in various ways. They don't use the evolutionary language that I use typically, but they do shape the environment to favor themselves. And in doing that, it, they're often favoring their own type of country, their own regime type. So uh, the United States has been doing this for many decades really biasing the international environment to favor market-based liberal democracy and that to select for it really in my language and that makes it harder if you're state socialist or you're authoritarian in some sense it has made it more difficult to thrive as that kind of country there's a lot of pressure to liberalize democratize become more capitalist and so on so that's that's coevolution the regime power dilemma i think follows from that Evolution, evolutionary theory has a lot about adaptation in it. So you you could say, given the story I just told, well, a country that feels pressure to democratize can just do so, can adapt. If it's if it's suffering some sort of penalty from being authoritarian, it can just democratize. And that's true. Uh, the problem here is very often authoritarian leaders don't want to do that. They they, in fact, believe the national interest entails not only physical security from foreign attack, it also entails being authoritarian, having an authoritarian regime. So those are two different things, actually, the regime type and security. Typically, leaders think they go together. Sometimes th that's not true. So what this means is the international environment actually can impose a dilemma on governments either adapt to the environment by becoming, let's say, more democratic, or accept, stay authoritarian and be less secure. It, the choice is yours. Of course, governments hate this sort of thing. They hate this dilemma. They hate trade-offs. They want to minimize them. And I should, should just say the regime power dilemma also sometimes affects democracies. So in the 1930s, it worked against uh, democracy. It was pressing democracies in Europe and the Americas, uh, and, and I would say Japan, to adapt by becoming more authoritarian or else suffer the consequences, be less secure in the world. So the United States and the other democracies responded eventually in the 1940s to that dilemma with what I call ecosystem engineering. They intuited, again, didn't use evolutionary language about this, but they recognized we have this problem, we, we, and it's a big problem. We don't like it. Can we elude this dilemma, which I call the regime power dilemma, so that we don't face a trade-off between maintaining our domestic regime of democracy or being secure against foreign attack and intimidation? Can we arrange the world so that we can have both of these things we want? Thank you so much. Those are really excellent insights into what I believe are some of the central concepts. And let us perhaps continue by talking a bit more about some of the authoritarian challengers. Now, you show in the book that both China 
and Russia have been engaging in ecosystem engineering. So what are some of the key dimensions of their attempts at this? And what have been some of the more concrete shapes that Russia's and China's attempts have taken? Yes. Both of these countries are authoritarian. They don't have identical regimes. I want to be clear. You know, China is still a, a what we call a Leninist state. It's ruled by a communist party. It's not Marxist, really. It's sort of semi, maybe quasi-Marxist, but it's certainly Leninist, meaning that the Communist Party has a monopoly, an effective monopoly on political power, and it's determined to keep it. This is so this is extremely clear in every public pronouncement. Scholars all agree on this. Uh, Russia is dominated by the United Russia Party. So it's become more Leninist recently, but you know, Vladimir Putin has affected this. In fact, there's talk that he's going to run for president next time, detach himself from the United Russia Party. So I'm, I'm tracking that. I don't quite know what that means. But um, what these two regimes have in common is the determination to stay in power and a, a, a strong perception that the major threat to their remaining in power is American slash liberal hegemony. That is to say, they they see the United States not just as a great security rival, but as a country. And, and I would throw the European Union, especially in Russia's case, this big hegemonic blob that is trying to get them to change their regimes either suddenly or subtly and slowly. So they see this as a great threat. And this is what uh, has, has uh, led them to cooperate a great deal. I, I need to say a little bit more about what I mean by the international environment, and then I'll talk about what I think China and Russia are both doing to shape that environment so that it no longer favors liberal democracy, but instead favors their kind of authoritarian capitalism. So I argue in the book that the international environment uh, includes three components, and these three interact. They're not completely separate. One is international rules and institutions. These can be biased in favor of market capitalism. They can be biased in favor of state socialism. They can be biased in favor of open democracy, authoritarianism, and so depending on how they're structured. So for example, the International Monetary Fund, at least since the 80s, has been pretty biased in favor of transparent rule of law, constitutional democracies. So if you accept an IMF loan, you need to restructure your, your economy, but also certain elements of your political system, um, usually grouped under the label of rule of law. So borrowing states, the authoritarian ones don't like it. They regard it as an intrusion in their internal affairs, but the bias is there. And this is deliberately done by the United States and the other Western countries. So international rules and institutions are one. A second element of the environment that can pressure states to become more democratic or more authoritarian is information. I especially mean information about what regime type works best. Is democracy really the best system to achieve national goals. In the 1990s, it certainly appeared that way. The Soviet Union had just collapsed and, and so on. And China seemed to be adopting some democratic elements. Um, in the 1930s, it seemed that democracy really was a loser regime. Countries were abandoning it or compromising on it very heavily. Uh, this is based partly on the facts of the case. In the 90s, again, the United States, the Western Europe had all done really well, and so the Union was gone. It's also based on propaganda. States really try to manipulate the information environment so that people believe, elites in 
particular, they're very concerned about elites in countries, other countries, believe that their system is the best. In the United States, we call this public diplomacy. Uh, China actually ha has the um, candor to call it propaganda. Um, but in any case, so that's element number two, information. The third element of the environment, I think, really, really matters is what I call the balance of power among regimes. So what does that mean? Uh, roughly, the more democracies are in the world and the more powerful, the more money and weapons those democracies have, the harder it is to be authoritarian. And there's a lot of scholarly literature on this, what's called neighborhood effects. At an extreme, democracies can promote actively promote democracy in their neighborhood. The United States has done this with various degrees of success, sometimes failure in various parts of the world. The European Union does it more subtly, trying to uh, export democracy through various incentives into east, its east and south, which Russia doesn't like, of course. So those are the three elements of the environment. Now, China and Russia are to varying degrees trying to shape these three elements of the international environment so that they no longer favor liberal democracy. They no longer press them to adapt by democratizing, but instead permit them to thrive, be secure and wealthy and so on, competitive while remaining authoritarian. And in doing that, again, I'm arguing if they succeed, uh, they're making it harder for countries to remain democratic. So it's it's sort of the international environment, it, it's hard for it to be neutral among regime types. It's selecting for one or the other. Um, Russia, I, I guess, is the more obvious case here. Uh, Putin and his uh, ruling circle are very, very worried and have been for years about color revolutions, which have happened in their neighborhood to their west, and even some in the Middle East. They regard this as a conspiracy of Western powers, governments and foundations and so on. Um, and so Russia has pushed back in various ways, trying to fund far right parties, populist parties in Europe, manipulating the information environment within democracies to confuse people, to turn them against mainstream governments, centrist governments. And most extremely, Russia has interfered actually in Georgia and now Ukraine in a big way militarily. And this is what, you know, what's Russia trying to do? It's trying to do a number of things. But one thing it's trying to do is prevent Ukraine from becoming a stable liberal democracy because Putin knows it's almost certain that such a Ukraine would align with not, not just join the European Union, but join, join NATO eventually. So the, the question of NATO-EU affiliation is entangled with this question of what type of regime Ukraine has. And the Ukrainians know it, the Russians know it, the Europeans know it, the North Americans know it. Every, everybody's aware of this entanglement. Russia also has tried to manipulate international information by undermining democracy as this decadent regime. We don't want it, at least our part of the world. Putin has sort of co-opted social conservatism made Russia into the champion of traditional marriage and so on. And all of this is trying to undermine the appeal of liberal democracy by identifying it with what, you know, what he considers decadence. Uh, Russia also has been working at the international level to try to alter international rules and institutions to inherently pivot over to China, which has done a bit more and is more obvious and, and China has more leverage over China has a lot more money and influence really uh, and its prognosis is a lot better than Russia's 
So let's see what one obvious place where China and Russia have worked and other authoritarian regimes have worked to alter international rules and institutions is in human rights. The human rights regime, mostly centered in the United Nations, has been at least since the 90s. There were contests in the Cold War about what do we mean by human rights, but since the 90s has really favored liberal individualism, rule of law, has really taken to task authoritarian regimes like those of Beijing and Moscow for violating human rights systematically. So the Chinese are tired of this, they're fed up with it. In fact, they have been working this problem at least since 1989 after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And I, I discussed this in the book. Deng Xiaoping, who was then the still running China, at least behind the scenes, was quite surprised at just how angry the West was at that massacre and the economic sanctions that the West and Japan imposed on China were, were a surprise. He really thought that those would, maybe they wouldn't last very long, but he didn't take them seriously. When it was clear, that China's growth and its grand strategy was threatened by the sanctions, the party, the Chinese Communist Party, decided, well, we need to change the way the world thinks about human rights so that it tolerates our notion, our regime better. Uh, this has to change. So the Chinese have been working subtly, uh, but they're quite explicit about this to change global discourse about human rights to allow the way China thinks about rights to prevail or at least to be tolerated. They're big on national sovereignty. The Chinese nation should decide for itself what Chinese human rights are. They emphasize that the first right is economic development. Other things follow. It's nice to have, you know, a two-party, a multi-party democracy. It's nice to have freedom of the press, but those things are secondary to development. The Chinese also emphasize that China and much of the global south perhaps all of the global south has been victimized by western imperialism in the past and all of this human rights intrusion looks to them like just the same thing it's this western countries telling them how to run their societies it's empire building and it's no good so china is working in russia again they're cooperating to change the discourse also to change some rules and procedures on human rights governance at the un level they're having some success, limited. It's, it's by no means is a contest over. Information, both, both China, China is also manipulating inf the information environment as Russia is, may, maybe a bit more subtly, but also touting the virtues of what's called the China model over liberal democracy. The Chinese say, you know, the, the COVID pandemic showed, especially in the American case, that liberal democracy so-called is not really equipped to handle 21st century problems so many americans died chaos uh china handled it in a much more orderly fashion and far far fewer chinese died um and finally the balance of power among regimes china is in subtle ways exporting authoritarianism not through ford nothing like what russia is doing but their belt and road initiative this massive infrastructure investment project in mostly in the global south but extending into europe as well is uh entails exporting some surveillance technologies that lots of authoritarian countries in south asia the middle east and sub-saharan africa really want and they're getting getting these technologies at cut rate prices and this makes them 
it makes it easier for them to remain authoritarian and to resist democratizing pressure. So I've given you a lot to chew on there, but those are some of the ways that Beijing and Moscow, I think, are trying to turn the tables, trying to mold the international environment so that it's a very different kind of environment than we've had for the last, let's say, 70 years. No, that's indeed a great coverage. Thank you so much for that. Now, another substantial dimension of the book uh, focuses on what we might call the three ages of liberalism. Uh, you respectively uh, call them classical liberalism, welfare liberalism, and open liberalism. So could I ask you to briefly compare these three forms and how they have followed uh, each other historically? Yes. And let me open by saying what I've said so far in our in our time together makes it sound like all of the, the the threat to democracy in the United States and elsewhere is really coming from China and Russia and that that's the big problem and if only we could solve that you know that is not the argument of the book you're inviting me to talk about the the other half of the argument which is about uh what the West and you know I blame the United States first and foremost my own country has has done to to create or propel this problem and i summarize it by saying the type of liberalism we practice we have enacted is part of the problem is what i call open liberalism i like openness openness is a good thing all else equal but the type what what we have in practice is is proving harmful to both the popularity and the practice of democracy so so to dilate on that point, liberalism, without a modifier, open or otherwise, I take to be a political philosophy that upholds individual freedom as the highest good. Not every political philosophy does that. Some say, no, 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 the power of the, the solidarity of society is the highest good, or piety, obedience to divine law, or the dictatorship of the proletariat, what, whatever. Um, so liberalism, but no, it's actually individual liberty. That's pretty abstract. In practice, societies have interpreted what that means differently over time and across space. Early, the first form of liberalism that was dominant, I call, and I didn't make this up, this is the general term, classical liberalism from the 18th century, early 19th century, pretty straightforward. Individual liberty is the highest good. The problem, the way to secure individual liberty is to get rid of the old regime, the ancien regime, the alliance of throne and altar, which um, makes for a hierarchical society and keeps, in particular, the, the new kind of bourgeois class from thriving, keep, keeps, it, uh, keeps it down. So this classical liberalism originally is really about property owning males, white males in Europe and in the Americas. But there is a real emphasis on uh, getting government out of the way so that these men can really thrive. They're being held down artificially by a bad regime. So the state needs to be tamed. The state needs to be liberalized and then we'll have freedom for all. So this is reflected in the writings and the practices of the 18th and, and 19th centuries. And I should say, so, so they have a story about how we got from classical liberalism to open liberalism. And the story is a challenge will arise that the current liberalism, whatever it is, can't handle very well. Uh, it runs out of solutions. 
more and more people in government, in academia, in religious organizations, in journalism, across society, start to say, we say we believe in individual liberty, but too many people don't have it. Just look around. Too many people don't have. So we need to make some changes. We need to reconceive maybe what we mean by individual liberty. We certainly need to reconceive our institutions so that they can bring liberty to more individuals than they did before. So the story here is familiar to students of 19th, early 20th century social and economic history. The Industrial Revolution, which in most of developed society really kicks in in the middle of the 19th century, late 19th century, involves really the creation of a working class, of, as Marxists call it, proletariat. These are people mostly living in cities. So uh, millions of people, uh, men and, and women, are moving to cities, working in factories, a completely erratically new type of life. They don't have much bargaining power against their employers, and there are a lot of these people um, in the cities. So this is what was called in the 19th century the social question. These are discontented people. Uh, most of them have a pretty awful life. It's better than what they had back on the farm, it, but, but it's, it's not what they were promised. It's not what they're expecting, and so on. So there develops within liberal thought, I should say, this is when socialism really uh, gains a foothold and starts to develop, especially in Europe. But they're liberals who say we're not ready to go all the way with socialism. We want to we want to maintain individual freedom, but we recognize that this vast working class, consisting of individuals who supposedly have freedom, don't have it. And the problem seems to be the classical liberalism we're employing doesn't allow for laws and regulations that permit them to secure freedom. So we need to make some changes. And this is uh, complicated laws allowing collective bargaining start to take hold, redistributive laws, um, part the Social Democratic Party in Germany. There are Christian Democratic parties on the continent as well that are starting to say this sort of thing. The Labour Party in, in um, Britain, elements in the Democratic Party in the United States begin to adopt these views. Welfare liberalism uh, really only gains a foothold in the 1930s during the Great Depression, when the problem becomes almost overwhelming to these democracies. Uh, so John Maynard Keynes in Britain puts a kind of a theoretical footing underneath welfare liberalism. In the United States, President Franklin Roosevelt um, enacts what, what he called the New Deal, which is a much more regulation of the economy, much more deficit spending, redistribution of wealth, other countries are experimenting with this as well. The classical liberals don't like this at all. It's damaging individual freedom. The welfare liberals say, look, freedom's for everybody, every adult, and this is the way to get it. The old ways don't work. So welfare liberalism uh, also brings with it a, cer a certain culture of um, what we now consider a conformity, kind of stable family structure. Um, so think of post-World War II industrial countries um, which have a certain societal conformity and stability. People really seem to want stability, including economic stability, stable families, a guaranteed income, a guaranteed pension when you retire, uh, and so on. In the 1960s, the cultural aspects of welfare liberalism become tiresome to a much of a younger generation of, let's say, university students and, and people that age. Uh, this is the 60s counterculture. It, it takes hold 
uh, in many parts of the world, again, I'll, I'll, Europe and the Americas in particular, but elsewhere. And then in the 70s, the economic side of welfare liberalism starts to look like a failure. Uh, heavy regulation of the economy, high, high marginal tax rates on wealthy people, heavy redistribution, um, guaranteed robust social safety net. These things begin to look really expensive. So deregulation begins to become more popular in the halls of government. And the center right had been saying this for a long time. But really what's interesting is when the center left adopts, um, begins to abandon some elements of welfare liberalism. So you have this great synthesis, really, that takes hold in the 1990s across these countries. And that's what I call open liberalism. So whereas welfare liberalism said, we believe in individual liberty, the, the great barrier to individual liberty for welfare liberals in the early 20th century is the uh, unfettered capitalism. So we need to tame capitalism. We need to use the state to regulate capitalism more. Open liberals said that was then. Now the biggest threat to individual liberty is um, traditional barriers, borders, norms, institutions. We need to lift those or at least give people the opportunity to escape those. This ranges from norms within societies to, frankly, national borders, which are kind of an economic inefficiency. National borders are prohibiting capital from flowing freely across countries. They're limiting international trade. We need to open up uh, the world. And this, the great thing is this will allow people everywhere to be freer and freer, um, wealthier and wealthier. We will have finally a meritocracy where talent and effort is rewarded and these artificial barriers, both social and economic, have been lifted. So I think the culmination of open liberalism is seen as in what we call the third way of Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Gerhard Schroeder, uh, some other politicians. Uh, these are center-left politicians mostly who embraced both uh, complete economic openness and the kind of social liberalism that came up in the 60s. They, these things were once seen as antagonistic, but they fused together and worked together under open liberalism. And that is the kind of liberalism that is uh, predominant today across most of our society. But I think it's showing a lot of strain right now. Indeed, you uh, closed the book by uh, pleading for a fourth wave, a more pluralistic wave of liberalism. And you also argue that we might be entering an age of two international orders. So let us perhaps discuss those two uh, questions in turn and again begin with the, the former uh, concerning uh, liberalism. So what would such a pluralistic form of liberalism have to look like uh, in your view? Yes, I, I want to be clear. I, I am, I'm not capable of building an entirely new political theory, or I could try it, but I think the story I tell about the development of welfare liberalism and open liberalism involves lots of people over lots of time, lots of experimentation. So I'm really calling for that, that we need to be. Uh, but I give I give it a try by saying, let's think about something I'm going to call pluralist liberalism. And the, the basic instinct here, Fedence, is that open liberalism has many people have thrived, have succeeded. But we know, particularly the rise of populism across so many wealthy democracies, many people have not benefited and, in fact, suffered, or at least they believe they've suffered, and their communities have suffered. So those people don't feel free. 
they have smartphones, they can watch TikTok. So they may appear free to a certain type of person in Silicon Valley, but they their life chances are not what they thought they would be. They're not what they believe they've been promised by society. And some of these people, particularly in small towns and rural areas, but not only there, really do not like the pressure to be open to all possibilities all the time. They actually want to be able to commit to their community. They don't want to have to face having to move. In the United States, it's such a large country, this is a special problem. They don't want to have to move to the other end of the country to pursue a job. They want their community to thrive as it is. They they want to be able to commit to a family, to various institutions. There are a lot of pressures to be open to change perpetually in just about every aspect of life. So there's a paradox here. This open liberalism, which brings, which says it brings unlimited freedom, actually imposes a burden on some people. They don't, they want to be able to choose and commit over the long haul without being penalized for it. So a pluralistic liberalism, this is just a theory, would allow them to do that without penalty and would allow communities to thrive without enormous turnover, without being hollowed out and, and so on. So that's the beginning place. I try to flesh it out a little bit by saying, uh, and this is a little bit of good news, on the right and the left, they're people thinking in similar terms. They don't always want to admit it, but they're economists and sociologists and political scientists on both ends of the spectrum are recognizing these problems that communities and individuals have really been decimated by what I call open liberalism. We can come up with some remedies. Let, let's, let's see if we can do that together and kind of rethink uh, what personal liberty means here in the 21st century. Maybe it's not. For all the achievements, and I want to say open liberalism had some great achievements. I actually think it won the Cold War. But I think it has uh, passed, as we say, passed its sell-by date, probably. We need to couple with, with a new one. So that's a beginning sketch of what I mean. Like I mentioned, uh, you also diagnose uh, towards the end of the book that the emergence of two separate but overlapping international ecosystems within a single uh, global environment is not quite likely, one of which would revolve around the US and the other around China. So could I ask you to describe uh, what would characterize such an age of two international orders and how this kind of situation might be managed? So international here, international is not the same thing as global. Global is really the entire world. International literally just means two or more, between two or more countries, two or more states. So it's possible in theory that you could have two or three or four international orders. In fact, I would say in the Cold War with the Soviets and the Americans, we had two international orders. In the 1950s, they barely overlapped. In the 70s, 80s, they did, they did overlap more and more. Anyway, getting back to the basic problem, China, I think it's an irreducible problem as long, long as China, the Chinese Communist Party, is determined to hold on to its monopoly of power on the one hand, and in the other major power, the United States, it's determined to remain a liberal democracy. By the way, stay tuned on that. I certainly, I certainly hope so. Um, then the two countries are going to have a lot of problems agreeing on the international 
environment? What can, because each rightly perceives that if the other has the main influence over the environment, that puts me at a disadvantage, my type of country and me, my country, at a deep disadvantage. I don't want that. So one way through that problem is just to muddle through it. China and the United States both compete to shape the environment to favor themselves. That's basically what we've had. Um, the other is a separating equilibrium in which, although neither Beijing nor Washington maybe wants this to happen, they end up um, each building and nurturing its own set of international institutions and rules. And there's some signs that some of that might be happening. I don't want to exaggerate this, but China famously uh, inaugurated the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, a few years ago. The United States is not part of it. Um, actually, that looks like it's adopting IMF Western norms of lending. But I want to focus uh, on the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, China's $1 trillion infrastructure investment project in the global south. Most of the lending in the BRI is done by state-owned banks, the China Development Bank and the China Export-Import Bank. And these banks do not conform to Western international norms of lending. The agreements, the loan agreements are often opaque. Restructuring is, is not required of the borrower nations. And the borrowers, of course, love this, and particularly the authoritarian countries. So what the Chinese are doing, whether they mean to or not, is putting out there a new global norm of international lending. And there's a lot of capital behind it. So insofar as it succeeds, we may be looking at a sort of a parallel system of international finance developing that is much more tied for understandable reasons to an authoritarian regime and authoritarian regimes like it. I don't expect the West to say, oh, well, we'll conform, we'll become like that. Forget all the, the forget the Washington consensus and transparency and rule of law. No, I really think the West is going to stick with its rules. So that could be one example of what I'm talking about. I don't expect hermetically sealed orders. This is not the United States and the Soviet Union in 1953. Uh, that would be enormously costly for everybody. I think the opportunity cost of radical decoupling between the West and China is, is too heavy. You know, short of a war, which none of us wants, that's not going to happen. But I do think that a selective decoupling, both economic, uh, in terms of trade and in terms of investment, and maybe some other areas, could be emerging already. So this is something to stay tuned to. Are we looking at two overlapping but analytically separate international orders uh, developing um, before our eyes? Uh, thank you so much for that substantial response and for the entire conversation today, John. My pleasure, Fanny. It's been, it's, been, it's been very nice talking. Uh, the pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with John M. Owen IV today, whose important new book is titled The Ecology of Nations, American Democracy in a Fragile World Order. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.